First uh, Peter chapter two, verses four through twelve. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am lying in Zion, a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the opportunity to study your word. As always, we are mindful and grateful that you are God who has communicated to us the most important information we need, namely about you and about what you're doing in your son Jesus. And you have been gracious through the sacrifices of guys like John Wycliffe and William Tyndale to be able to have scripture in our language. May we never be satisfied to have it in our language alone, but may we always strive to see your word go forth. I thank you for the Smiths. I thank you for David and Melissa and, and their obedience and others like them that serve with Wycliffe Translators and other organizations that are seeking to go out so that all may know your word rightly, that they may know you rightly. And so I pray for David and Melissa as they seek full funding. Father, would you grant it? Would you grant it sooner rather than later? Would you allow them to be able to get back to Papua New Guinea, to the work that they're doing there, the important eternal kingdom work that they're doing there. And so, Father, would you help us? I'm grateful for the way that we are able to support them collectively as a faith family, but then also many of us individually supporting them. We pray for continued partnerships and others that would help so that they may go and do what you've equipped them to do so that all in Papua New Guinea would be able to have your word to know you rightly and all across the world. But Father, having your word in our language doesn't mean that we want it and it doesn't mean that we can understand it. So I pray that your Holy Spirit would incline our hearts to your word today and that your spirit would light your word up to us. That you would change our want to's and that our want to would be what you want. That you would conform us to the image of Christ. That you would use your word. That you would feed us from your word. We come to the time where it's not just an oral presentation that I've put together. We come to the time in the service, the most important time when you speak from your own word to your people. And so God, we beg that you would feed your sheep. You would help us to see your word and to, to know uh, what you have done for us in Jesus, what you're calling us to do in his power. And as we've already prayed, we pray the same for our sister churches here in our town, that the word would be clear, the gospel would be effectual, 
that your people would be equipped further in your word to go forth and to proclaim your excellencies. May we never become desensitized that we were not just in the domain of darkness, we were darkness. That we deserve no mercy, but you have extended mercy. That you have not just made us a people, you have made us your people. And made this privileged position not be lost on us. May we be grateful that we have trusted in Christ rather than stumbling over him. And to know that if we see him as chosen and precious, it's not because we came to that realization on our own, but your grace and your grace alone gave us eyes to see Jesus in the way that you see him. And may that make a difference in each day of our lives. May we truly fight together against sin. Because there are people looking at us and they want to know if the gospel's real. And I'm sorry if our lives are marring the gospel. Our lives are blurring Christ to the people who are watching. People at school, the people at work. The people who we don't even know but who are randomly a part of our social media network. They're all watching. And they want to know that Christ is risen indeed. And that he's reigning over us. And so help us to live before them in such a way that's not a show or a sham. It's not a performance. But we are your beloved. We are your chosen race. Your holy nation. Your royal priesthood. And we cannot help but live for your glory and for their good. So help us. We don't need to be just informed about this text. We need to be transformed. So do that now. Use your spirit and word in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever found yourself wondering if this was worth your time and energy? Uh, I've find that every time we've gone on vacation and stayed somewhere and if you go and listen to this condo presentation you get a free breakfast or whatever else and every one of those I always think to myself I'm wasting my life here uh, there are moments where I've thought on my deathbed I'm going to want these minutes back one day uh, in different situations uh, different things where I felt like time was not stewarded well but in particular, when we are sacrificing and serving others, uh, we want to know, is it worth it? And, and we struggle to know if it's worth it if our sacrifice isn't noticed and affirmed by them. So if others aren't making a big deal of our sacrifice, sometimes we wonder if it's really worth it. If someone hasn't noticed and we had to actually post it on social media uh, for them to know we were serving in this incredibly sacrificial way, uh, then, uh, then we'd struggle to know, was it, was it really worth it? And then... If you add suffering to the sacrifice, we really begin to question, is this worth what it is costing me? My guess is, in our world today, while we sit comfortably in these chairs and have the air conditioner blaring behind me over here, you know, we have brothers and sisters that are in prison for the sake of the gospel. And even today, as they suffer and may have suffered for many months and maybe some of them many years, perhaps they're asking the question, is this worth what it's costing my family? Is it worth what it's costing me to engage in this sacrifice? 
And maybe if some of us were really honest today, we would say that even in our westernized, affluent culture, maybe there's been a time or two where we've even wondered, is following Christ really worth it? Are we laboring in vain? Is it really going to matter? Has Christ really been risen from the grave? Peter is writing to a group of people who are suffering for the cause of Christ in various ways, various trials, but they're suffering and he is writing to encourage them to say those who trust in Christ will never be put to shame. So whatever it is that whatever sacrifice you're being made to offer or you are offering and whatever suffering you're experiencing, it's not in vain. Christ knows and it is worth it. And what pushes us to be able to pursue that further is who we've been made in him, what God has done for us in Jesus. And so as we come to consider 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 12, the passage in the sentence at the top of your notes is that as we're being built together into his dwelling place, we are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's doing something with us, not just as individuals, but corporately together. And what he has done in us fuels what we are to do in his power and for him. And that those who do these things will never be put to shame. There is an honor that will come. And isn't that the amazing thing? And what, what I said in my prayer, that one day God might say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Yet every bit of our well-doing and good, faithful serving will all be only by his grace. Right? All by his grace. So with that in mind, I want to point out to you at least four truths from this text. The first one is that God calls us by his grace to trust Christ rather than trip over him. Those who trust in Jesus will never be put to shame. Our text says here, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And he quotes from the Old Testament here. You know, there are some pastors in our contemporary days who want to disconnect us from the Old Testament. I will not name any names, but if Peter were to do that, he would have nothing to say in this whole text because this whole text is fueled by what God is doing for us in light of the Old Testament. He says, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. An important question that Jesus asked his disciples one day as they were making their way ultimately toward Jerusalem, he said this, Who do you say that I am? That's one of the most important questions that any of us can answer for ourselves. In our world today, Mormons say certain things about Jesus. He's Satan's brother. Muslims say certain things about Jesus, that he's a, a prophet. Uh, moralists say certain things about Jesus, that Jesus helps us have good behavior. But none of these people, the MMMs, I love that because one day my, da my dad struggled to call them MMMs. He would always say, MMMs. Uh, <laughs> these MMMs, they do not see Jesus in the same way. They don't, they don't have the same answer to the question, who is Jesus? And so is I've tried to remind you often, we are not free to think of Jesus in any way we want. We are bound by what's revealed about him in his word. When we think of Jesus separate from what's revealed in his word, that's idolatry. And I will admit, creating a Jesus to follow is easier than following the Jesus that's revealed in the text. The Jesus that calls us to deny self, take up cross and follow him. If I can convince another Jesus who lives for my glory, then that's a lot easier to follow. 
But a more important question that we might ask based on this text, why don't we switch to this one, David? Just switch to the podium one and cut that one off. A more important question that we might want to have an answer for this question is, who does God the Father say Jesus is? Who does God the Father say Jesus is? And in our text, we see this. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Who is Jesus to God? First of all, he's chosen. This is, it is through Jesus that God wants to build his temple. Jesus is the foundation that he wants to use. Jesus is wanted. The people rejected Jesus and didn't want him as the foundation for what they were building. But God says, Jesus is the one that I'm choosing. He's my choice for what I'm doing and working. And then he is precious. He's valuable and unique. And the world didn't treasure him for what he is. But in God's eyes, Jesus is chosen. So this is the route that he wants to take. And he is precious. He's valuable. He's a treasure. And then ultimately, he is a living stone. God the Father has made him that living stone. He has given him life, raised him from the dead. And so this means that he is a sure foundation on which we can build our lives. And because he's living, it means he's the one that gives us life. He's not just a, he, he's not just a was, he is. And he is the foundation and the one who grants life for all the rest of us. And so as the hymn writer wrote, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid, what? Rock. I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Now, what I would say to you is, it is a grace to see Jesus as God the Father sees Jesus. It is a grace to see Jesus as chosen and precious and a living stone in the foundation of the church. And we do not arrive there on our own. None of us come to the conclusion about Christ because we're clever. None of us see Jesus as he is in our own because we are all blinded. Our minds are hostile and darkened. And so there are those who trust in Jesus. There are those who, as the text says, come to him and they will never be put to shame. That's what the end of the verse says that Peter is quoting, that whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. But there are those who will trip over Jesus and they will never be saved. Further in our text, in verse 7 and verse 8, it says, The honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word. There are two groups that we have in all the world today, in this room and in our city and in our state and across the world. There are those who believe in Jesus and the way that God the Father sees him, and there are those who do not. And they reject that. And for whatever reason, instead of falling on Jesus, they fall over Jesus. Instead of trusting him, they trip over him. He becomes an offense. And we'll talk about that in a moment of why it's an offense and why they may stumble in these ways. And for whatever reason, they decide to reject him, but it will always be to their ruin. And so Peter is writing to a group who've chosen to follow Jesus. And yet there's a whole other group that are rejecting him. And then as a part of that, they're persecuting Peter's audience. And so he wants to encourage them to say, you've made the right choice. If you have come to Jesus, you have made the right choice. It's not wasted. It's not in vain. He also wants them to know that the presence of persecution doesn't mean the absence of God's plan 
or the lack of accomplishing, the absence of his presence or the lack of accomplishing his plan. So it gets to the sub third sub-point I want to show you there is that neither our trusting nor tripping is accidental but appointed. If we didn't believe in exposition, it would be easy to skip the last phrase of verse 8. The, the last phrase of verse 8 says, They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Matter of fact, I once chastised a young preacher because he, he did skip these, this phrase. And it is our task as shepherds to not skip difficult passages just because we may struggle with the implications of that passage or what's there or what it says. Or, or even we may not like what we think it says about God or, or we don't have freedom to change any of these things. We are bound by what God reveals in his word. And so what we can know is that our trusting nor our tripping, that these aren't accidental, but they are appointed. Proverbs says the Lord has made everything. Uh, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. And so, as I said, the, 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 the presence of persecution doesn't mean the absence of God's providence or his plan. And so just because the world rejects Jesus and then persecutes you for not doing so, it doesn't mean you've made the wrong decision. He said, this is, this is going according to plan, is what Peter's trying to say, that the presence of all these people giving you grief because they have rejected Jesus, but you have not, is, is according to plan. It's the same way that Peter in his prayer says, gathered in the city were Herod and Pilate and all of these to ultimately accomplish what your predestined plan had in mind, what you were doing, that there was a plan. So the, the presence of Jesus' imprisonment and torture, it's not that the plan went haywire, it was going right through the plan. And in our world, there will always be those who trust in Jesus and those who trip over Jesus and those who trust will be vindicated. Now, here's the question that we need to ask and why the last phrase in verse 8 shouldn't be the main point of the sermon. This is where people go off and, and can get off in the broccoli, as one of my good friends said. Peter is writing merely to en encourage them, but here's what I, I want to encourage you. If you are worried whether you have been appointed to trust or to trip, let me just ask you a very simple question. Who do you believe Jesus is and have you placed your trust fully in him for salvation and righteousness? If you have trusted, are trusting, and continue to trust Jesus, then you never have to worry about tripping over him. Those who stumble over Jesus will be shamed, but those who trust in Jesus will be saved. And what I hope you will grasp from the very beginning is if left to our own we would be those who reject Jesus. We would be those who build our own kingdoms. We would be those who don't want to see Jesus as precious and valuable. And if we have come to see Jesus as God sees him, chosen and precious and a living stone, the foundation of the church, you can know that it is by grace and grace alone. So God calls us by his grace to trust Jesus, not stumble over him. Second truth from our text is that God calls us to keep coming to Christ as believers who are being built together for his presence and praise. In verse 4 it says, as you come to him, this is, this is a phrase that is written in the present that means that we don't just come to him for initial justification and regeneration, but that we keep coming to him over and over. And we don't just come by ourselves, but he's doing something with us collectively. We're being built together. Here's what he goes on to say in verse 5. 
So as you come to him, verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up. Well, who's building us up? Paul has answered that question in Ephesians 2. That the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is building us to be a dwelling place for the Lord. Here, the phrase says that you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. So we are being built together. This is such an important word for all those who would say, I'm cool with Jesus, but I'm not cool with the church. Those who would say, hey, I'm going to do my, my own thing. When God reconciles us to himself, he also reconciles us to others, and he is building us up. And the two images here, if you think through the Old Testament, the first one of being a spiritual house means we are now the temple. And certainly from 1 Corinthians, we learn that each of us are individually dwelled by the Holy Spirit, and we are the dwelling place of God. But the New Testament also paints this picture of corporately, we are the dwelling place. We are the temple where God's spirit resides together. And as we saw from Ephesians 4 last week, each part, when each one is using the spiritual gift, the whole thing is built up in love. In the same way, each stone is important. Now, our problem is we want to be a really important stone. We want to be a really pretty stone. And we don't have freedom to pick which stone we are and the building that he's making. All of us should be grateful that we are a living stone in it. Amen? And so he says, look, there's, you're being built in the temple. But it's not just that. We are also the priests. That we're being built together as a priesthood to offer these spiritual sacrifices. And we're going to come back to, to what, this, what this looks like at, at the very end these spiritual sacrifices, but for the moment, I want you to repeat after me. Every member, Every member in, Christ in Christ is a minister. Is a One more time. Every member, Every member in, Christ in Christ is a minister. In our church in Baton Rouge, we always had a saying that every member is a minister. Every member is a minister. So we don't, first of all, we don't just come to church. We are the church. We're being built up together into the dwelling place of God. And then each of us has the responsibilities to be ministers. In the Old Testament, obviously, the Levites were the one group that would be his priests and ministers. Now, he said, you don't have to go to seminary to be a minister. That if you are in Christ, we are all ministers, which means we are not called to be served but we are called to serve, that we shouldn't come together just with our own needs and interests in mind, but we should look for ways that we can serve each other and put the needs of others as more important as our own. And so God calls us to keep coming to Christ, keep coming to Christ, and as, he, as we do that, we're going to be built together into his temple and then his ministers, and we need that. We need each other in order to do that, which then gets us to truth number three, that God calls us from darkness to discipleship and from slavery to sonship. Verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I want us to consider first what he calls us from. And what he calls us from is our worst state. God doesn't call us because we're awesome. God doesn't call us because of our excellencies. He says, as a matter of fact, when God called you, you were in darkness. We learn also from other New Testament writers that it's not just that we were in darkness, that we were darkness ourselves. That our minds are alienated, hostile, doing evil against him. That we are spiritually blind and deaf. 
And we're under the domain of darkness. And the thing is, we loved it. We loved it. I turned on the light the other day on our front porch and a roach went running, right? And so it was my goal to chase him and conquer him and exercise dominion. But those things run fast, right? And then I got him, but he kind of got me because I slid on him, you know, sort of a, he had a little last laugh, you know? And so we, we love darkness. John writes and says, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. So you do not think, need to think that any of us were in the darkness going, man, I wish I was out of this. Man, I, I don't really like this. I, I wish I could be in the light. It's like the song we all grew up. I want to be in the light as you are in the light. want to shine like the stars in the heavens. You know what? All right, good. All of us who worked youth camp forever, some of us still do, and all these songs. But none of us were saying, I want to be in the light because we didn't love the light. We loved darkness, and left to ourselves, we would continue to cling to what would ultimately cause us to perish. Not only were we in darkness, we were not a people, and we were those without mercy. Ephesians 2 has the best way to say, hey, remember what you were like without Christ, alienated, separated from the commonwealth of Israel, cut off, and with no hope. Every once in a while, we should probably remember that. We should heed that command from Ephesians 2 to remember what we were without Jesus. And if left here, we would all perish. And this is massively important because you and I pick friends because of what we like in them. Or we pick who we're gonna serve, sometimes based on what we think we can get from them. Or we pick who we'll serve based on who, or there are things that we like or things that are good about them. It's why Paul writes and says, you know, sometimes people will die for a good person. But that's not what Christ did. Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the weak and unrighteous. Christ died for those who were in darkness. And make no mistake, you did not call out of the darkness. You were called out of the darkness. And it is all a grace. It is all a grace. And you and I do not image God well when we only want to love people when they're all put together. You and I do not image God well when we only want to love people in their best state. For God loved us in our worst state. I've shared with you before, but years ago there was advice. A man called in to a, a TV show and wanted to abandon his wife because she had Alzheimer's. And the counsel given to him was, it would be fine. She doesn't remember. It's okay. Move on with your life so you don't waste that. I would tell you that that counsel comes from the pits of hell. Because the picture of the gospel is not that God loved us in our best state. We would not have a best state were it not for God. God loved us in our worst state. So if your love is based on others' worth, you will never image the love of God correctly. Here's God who, while we were in darkness, set his affections upon us and took action for us. And here's what he did. He called us into his marvelous light. This is so important because we get it so twisted. We make it about our excellencies and our light. Right? Look at the light I brought you. Mm -mm. No, he called us into his marvelous life, which the picture here is freedom. And then he calls us to be certain things. This is who we are the moment you believe in Jesus. You don't have to go on a mission trip to get this. You don't have to serve in preschool during, during church to get this. You don't have to serve for three hours every Sunday night for life groups with children to get this. This is yours the moment you believe in Jesus, that you become a chosen race. 
but you are a chosen race, meaning we're wanted, and it's not based on our color or our culture, but his choice. There's something that God is doing to create his own race of people uh, that is about reflecting his image. But don't miss that word chosen. Mm, many of you may have had experiences where others did not want you. Maybe you were the last kid picked at recess. Maybe you never got picked to the group projects in college because they didn't like you. Maybe you didn't get picked by a certain girl or guy or these sorts of things. Here's what you need to know. Everyone who will be in heaven is there because God chose them. God wanted them. You're chosen. He then says, a royal priesthood. I should have said it in a British accent. It would have made it more powerful, right? That we are a royal priesthood, that we are members before him. And this is incredible, that we have access to the Lord. And those priests would minister to the Lord on behalf of the people and then to the people on behalf of the Lord. And so through prayers and praise, they would lead the people to worship God rightly. And what a privilege this is for us to lead others to worship God rightly and to intercede for them in prayer and to serve and have access to God. And, and this is great news for us. That, that we ourselves can go directly to God today through the mediator of Christ and Christ alone. We don't have to put a sacrifice on the altar before you come into this room. We don't, we don't have to, to have others that will help get us kind of closer to Jesus. Jesus actually brings us all the way to the Father, having complete access. And what an incredible privileged position this is. And then a holy nation that we are... Holy means set apart. And, and don't just think set apart to chill. Set apart to serve. He, he sets apart for his purposes. And our allegiance is to his kingdom above all. And that's important. Because in our day, there's a lot of nationality. And sometimes in our churches, it becomes more about America than it becomes about Christ. It becomes more about our nation. And yet, should we be patriotic and care about our country? Certainly. Should we care about the flag and our government and our military? You bet. And should we pray? Yes. But my citizenship in heaven trumps any passport I'll ever own. And we have to keep that in perspective to know that the nation God has saved is not Germany, it's not France, it's not the United States. It is the nation that he is building together with his people. And they are set apart and holy. And then, if you would just look at this for a moment, a people for his own possession. We are his and he is ours. I don't know what you have in your 401k. I don't even know if you have like a negative 4k. I don't know what any other possession you have. But there is no greater privilege than to be in a special relationship with God the Father that we are his and that he is ours and that we are not our own. And if these things have been lost on you, I don't know how uh, the last time someone said, hey, tell me about yourself and you rolled into, well, I'm a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. See how that goes next time, right? Hey, tell me about yourself, right? And then be like, oh, I'm also uh, living in Mississippi, you know? And so... Uh, see how that goes. But this is how we've got to learn to think. This is who we are in Christ. And this is all because of what Christ has accomplished. It's nothing that you do to receive these incredible blessings. This is our identity. 
And all of this is fueled from the Old Testament. Chosen race comes from Isaiah 43. A royal priesthood from Exodus 19. A holy nation from Exodus 19. People for God's possession, same one. In verse 10, Peter draws from Hosea 1.10 and 2.23. And he's piling all of these things up to say, Hey, these other people may have rejected Jesus. And you may be suffering. But don't you ever forget who you are. Here's who God has made you to be. He has brought you into a special, privileged relationship that you have direct access to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This is who you are. Now, because of this, gets us to truth four. God calls us not just for our comfort, but for our commissioning. He calls us not just for our comfort, but for our commissioning. I love that Paul's receiving of grace did not produce passivity in his life, but pressing forward, Philippians 3, of pressing onward toward this upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That There was nothing about grace that said, I got my Beulah Land ticket, I'm going to sit back and wait. But there was pressing, there was stretching. And so he says, look, you are a chosen race, verse 9, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so we are to proclaim his excellencies. We proclaim his majesty because we have received his mercy and not vice versa. So we don't proclaim his majesty in hopes of receiving his mercy. We proclaim his majesty because once we didn't have mercy and now mercy, we have it. And so this mercy is fueling our proclamation. So what fuels us is what he's done for us. And I would just ask, how often this week did you proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light? If you are not considering his greatness, you're probably not conversing about it. You see, what's on our mind and in our heart is what flows out of our mouths. And if his excellencies aren't blowing us away, if his excellencies aren't what we're considering, then we're probably not talking about him. I love Paul in Acts 17, he just says, God did this, God did this, God did this. You go to Acts 13, God did this, God did this, God did this. This is proclaiming his excellencies. It's what the psalmist says in Psalm 96, that day by day we tell of his salvation, that we declare his great works among the nations. And so it's that we can't help. This isn't that we have to, it's that we can't help but do this. It's not forced, it's fueled. That we've received mercy. We've become his people. We're in a, a special relationship and we can't keep that a secret. We're continually being changed. And so we just talk about how awesome he is. My fear is we often pro uh, proclaim our excellencies. My fear is this is where we're more gifted. This is where we spend more of our time proclaiming our awesomeness rather than his. But that's not what we're called to do. And God didn't just call us for our comfort to be with him but to be used by him. And a part of that is that we proclaim his excellencies. There are other uh, ways that we're exhorted. Look in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So we are called to proclaim his excellencies. We are also called to live as sojourners and exiles. And that's part of the reason I love First Peter, because it helps us, if we've not had that mindset in a while, to be reminded this is to be our mindset. If we keep making this our home, 
rather than knowing that we're passing through, then this is a call to remember that you were sojourners and you were exiles, that you were aliens, that this isn't ultimately our home and this is how we're called to think. And as a part of living as sojourners and exiles, one aspect of that is abstaining from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. To abstain means to hold oneself constantly back from. To abstain means to hold oneself constantly back from. And he says wage war, that these are waging war, means it's not a one-time battle. It's a continual daily military campaign. It is a lifelong struggle against the flesh, the world, and the devil, ultimately. And, and one of the keys to this, obviously, going back to Romans 12 too, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Because when our mind is captivated by Christ, it will produce a body yielded to his purposes. So one of the places that we have to win the battle against the flesh is beginning in the mind, that our mind is being conformed further and further to Christ and, and to the mind of Christ. And, and that therefore we will abstain from the passions of the flesh. But uh, remember that we're being built up together. And so one of the good news for all, one aspect of good news for all of us is that we're never called to battle the flesh alone. First of all, we have his power. And second of all, we have his people that we're called to battle it together. How many of you texted an accountability partner this week and said, hey, I'm struggling with this specific temptation. Pray for me about this. I bet many of us don't because it doesn't matter how many times I say it to you. I say that the reason we don't is because we want each other to think that we're better than we are. But the gospel frees us to be who we are and to be real and to be transparent. And until we start being absolutely real about what our struggles are, we're going to continue to struggle and we're going to continue to fight alone. Man, text your spouse. What if we were honest with our spouses about the moments of temptation through a day? I am tempted to do something to our children that I will end up in prison for. <laughs> will you pray for me so that our children will graduate? Whatever the struggle is, Accountability only works with honesty and transparency and utilizing it. And we are called, not in his grace and freedom and light, to run towards sin, but to run away from it. And this is a part of where we have a role to play. We have a responsibility. And so I want to encourage you, pursue the things in your life that stir affections for Jesus. You know what sin does? It kills joy in Jesus. Sin kills joy. You know why some of you come in here with no joy to sing and you're unstirred? It's because you pursued Jesus. You pursued sin all week and then think Jesus is just going to clean it up when you walk through the door. I walk through this door every day. I can assure you the door's not magical. There's not a lot that gets cleaned up in my life by turning the alarm off. Actually, I won't lie. Mitchell does that or Kevin because they get here first. But Matthew and I would sometimes turn on late at night because we're still here. So... It's not by virtue of just walking through that sin kills joy. And we are called to abstain from the things that would diminish our affections for Christ. Think of the things in your life right now that are diminishing your love for God and do something about it. How about if next Sunday you don't come in with the same issues because you put them away? Remember last week we're called to put things away and we're called to abstain. This is our part. If you have hidden habitual real sin in your life... 
that you have yet to deal with, you will likely never be a passionate witness. You will feel too dirty. You will feel too shamed. And so following Jesus means denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following him. And we can't follow Jesus with a passion when we continue to let ongoing sin reign in our lives. And so we're called to abstain from this, but you're not called to do it together. And all of our elders will be willing to pray with you about any specific sin struggle you have. We would be willing to fight with you for joy in the Lord, to believe there's more joy in obedience. I read an incredible article yesterday, uh, and I'll, I'll try to send it to you, but it was 11 ways to shepherd our children through a pornographic world. And one of the ways that uh, was given as a strategy is they have to see in us that there's more joy in obedience than disobedience. That there's more joy in God than all of these other wretched things. And so we're called to abstain. And don't miss it. The flesh, the world, and the devil, they will wage war every day against your soul. They don't take days off. They don't know anything about Indigenous Peoples Day or Columbus Day. They don't know anything about Hallmark holidays. I assure you that. They will wage war from the moment you wake till the moment you go to bed. And they will not stop until glorification. And so in the middle of this, <laughs> verse 12, we're called to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So while... The flesh and the world and the devil rage against us. We're called to live in such a way that people could see Jesus. <laughs> they would glorify him, right? We are called to live honorably among non-Christians. And I would just say to you that as believers, that means, as Paul would say in Galatians, keeping in step with the Spirit is more important than keeping up with the Kardashians, right? And so that we, we live in such a way that our conduct causes people to ask questions to which the answer is Jesus. Why did you do that, Jesus? Why did you not do that, Jesus? Man, how could you encourage them? They're so mean. Jesus. How could you be so kind and sacrificial? Jesus. And so our conduct includes, obviously, both what we say and how we live. And we should live honorable lives and live in such a way that our good deeds bring glory to God. And so don't miss it. That is... That we live in such a way among the Gentiles so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This image here of seeing and observing uh, reflects sort of a long-term watching. That they're watching. Or they're watching. The parents on the soccer teams I coach, they're watching whether I know that or not. You're, the people that you go to repeatedly for haircuts or or car maintenance, they're watching. The people that you work with, they, they want to observe how you talk about others or don't talk about others, how you react to things at work, how you deal with problems, how you treat your family. Uh, we've been reading, you know, about Adoniram Judson, and it's been a, the one of the things that's been amazing to me is how the Burmese people would just come up and just watch what they did. Just watch what they did. They wanted to see and hear and observe. And so we're called to live in such a way that people would see Jesus and give him glory. Now, why would we do this? Why would we abstain from the flesh? And why, why would we live in such a way that non-Christians would glorify God? We'll go back to the very first word of verse 11. Beloved. Beloved. So reason number one we do this is because we are beloved. We are loved. And we, what fuels our obedience is always what he's poured into. So our actions are driven by his affections for us. But number two is the very last phrase then of verse 12. 
on the day of visitation. You know why we're to do this? Because we know a day is coming that not all of them know about. We know a day is coming where Jesus will be shown to be the true foundation. Where Jesus will be vindicated and all of those who have followed him will be vindicated. And in the midst of all of us being vindicated, they will be perished. They will perish forever. And so we know that there is a day that's coming and we are called to live in such a way that they would glorify God. As his believers think, going back all the way to verse 5, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. Not only are we called then to abstain from the passions, to to proclaim his excellencies, to live as sojourners and exiles, we're also called to offer spiritual sacrifices. Well, what's a spiritual sacrifice? Well, in the New Testament, there are multiple ones that are listed. Here are the ones that are listed. One, Romans 12, 1, that, that our body is given as a spiritual sacrifice. Two, Paul was striving to see the Gentiles as an acceptable offering to the Lord, that as we pour into and disciple others, that's a spiritual sacrifice. The church at Philippi collected an offering for the other uh, churches, the Judean churches, it was called a sacrifice, a spiritual sacrifice. And then in Hebrews, that uh, verse 13, uh, Hebrews 13, verses 15 and 16, that we are to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. The bottom line is that all that we do is meant to be a living sacrifice to him. In a moment, we're going to ask you to Consider praying and giving over whatever your offering may be and putting it in this basket. In essence, what we're saying here is we put ourselves in the basket every day to say, here's all of me for all of my life. And we make whatever spiritual sacrifice comes with that. As we do this, you need to know that not all are going to glorify God. You go back to what he's saying in those verses 4 through 8. And the reason that he's writing about some of them rejecting is because that's what that church, the churches that were scattered were experiencing. As we live for Jesus, not everyone's going to love it. And if he experienced rejection, so will we. And why does that matter? Because you and I are going to be tempted sometimes to change the gospel so it's not so offensive. We are going to be tempted to want to find approval from them rather than resting in the approval that comes from God and Jesus. And so why we have to be reminded that there is a day that's coming and why we need to share the gospel is, is because there are going to be people who reject it and they would reject it no matter what we change it to. But if we change it to a Jesus that doesn't offend them, that Jesus will not save them. So why, why is it that Jesus is offensive to some and he's stumbling block to others? First, the cross is offensive because we can't save ourselves. We have to have someone do something for us that we could never do for ourselves, and that's Christ and Christ alone. So the cross crushes our pride. The cross crushes our boasting in us. The cross crushes our own glory. And so it's offensive to them. Second, Jesus' lordship offends them. When Jesus is not a genie in a bottle who just revolves around our universe... But Jesus is actually Lord, man, people are going to stumble all over that. Because they may want Jesus to get them to heaven, but they don't want Jesus to mess with Monday. They don't want Jesus to mess with their dreams or their agendas. But I got to tell you, if we change the gospel, no one will be called out of darkness. There's only one way that he calls us out of darkness, and that is by the gospel. 
Colossians 1 and Ephesians 1, it says, when you heard the word of truth and understood, when you heard the word of truth and understood. So you and I better rest in the fact that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So we'll quit trying to find significance from all of these people who are lost. And instead we'll be set free to serve them rather than just trying to impress them. And they need us to be able to share the gospel that will deliver them, not the gospel that's deluded. And so they need to hear. The gospel is not your testimony. The gospel is not that God was lonely or needy. The gospel is not our achievement or our getting God's attention or Jesus is here because he has a wonderful plan for your life and wants to be your good friend. The gospel is that God reigns and that we all reject that and love darkness. But God sent Christ into the depth of our darkness and he put that darkness upon himself so that then God the Father might call us into his marvelous light. And then what it comes down to is where the text began. Belief or disbelief. And if we are granted the grace to believe, we should never take that lightly. There are no alternatives to the gospel and there are no additives to the gospel. We didn't need any of that when he delivered us from the domain of darkness and we don't have to go forward and make it sound prettier or better. So a couple application or concluding questions for you. When is the last time you expressed your gratitude to God for empowering you to trust Christ rather than trip over him? What I mean is if you see Christ as God sees him, what a precious gift. So to see how Christ took on your offenses rather than being offended by him, that's all a grace. To see him as precious. Is Jesus precious to you? Have you truly responded to the gospel? Have you come to Christ? Are you continually coming to Christ? Do you keep coming to Christ? Did you come to Christ this week? Or did you try to handle this week in your own strength and in your own power and in your own resolutions and commitments? Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. So we have to keep coming to Christ. If you're not coming to Christ repeatedly, I beg you to repent of that and to come to him. Are you being built together with other believers or do you keep trying to go it alone? Do you keep pursuing your plan or his? Do you see yourself as more significant than others? See, that's what Romans 12, I love that right after we're told to think rightly, the very next verse he says in verse 3 is not to think too highly of ourselves. I don't need the church. That's wrong. You, you do need the church. And they do need you. We have a part to play. And so if you're not finding ways to use your gifts regularly in a faith family, particularly this one, why not? Have you considered what a blessing it is not only to be the temple, but also the priest before the Lord, that we're not just his dwelling place and, and that we serve for his praise and what a privilege this is. Is your identity found in who you are in Christ or do you keep trying to find your identity in what you do and what you have and what others say about you? Because that all will fade away and that needs to be crushed. And lastly, is what you do for Christ fueled by who he's made you to be? Or do you keep thinking you need to earn a little bit and it, it is not finished? That Christ wasn't a sufficient substitute and you need to add to that. We need to rest in that. And all of our proclamation is fueled by mercy that we've received. I'm thankful there is a gospel. I'm thankful to have heard it. I'm thankful to have responded to it. 
And I hope you are too. And I hope you will never stop going with the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for a chance to consider this text. That what a grace it is to believe. And that if we trust in you, it's because you've helped us see Jesus as chosen and precious. To see him as you see him. And it matters what our view of Jesus is. And so I pray our view would be your view. You would grant that for each one of us. That he is the cornerstone. He is the foundation upon which you are building your people. Your church. Your dwelling place. I pray that if there are ways that we keep trying to go it alone. And forsake our responsibilities to one another. That you would help us to repent of that. That you are building us together. That we are being built up with other saints. And so we need to be a part of that. An intentional commitment. And what a privilege to be your temple and to be your priests. To be your dwelling place and to be for your praise. And we never lose sight of what a privileged position we hold. Thank you that in Christ you've made us to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A people for your own possession. Of all the things we could have in this world, there's no greater treasure than to be in special relationship with you. I pray then that that would fuel us to proclaim your excellencies. I'm sorry if we spent more of this week letting everyone else know how awesome we are. Please help us to minimize those weeks. Please help us to proclaim your excellencies because we're considering them. Just as we did at the start of the service, considering the power you exerted to raise God from the dead. There is, there is no end to what we consider could consider about your excellencies. And if we're considering them, then we'll have conversations about them. Help us to be grateful today that once we were without mercy, but now we've received mercy. Once we were not a people at all, but now we're your very people. May that not be lost on us that once we were not just in the domain of darkness, we were darkness. And we would have perished in the darkness had you not called us out of it. Had you not loved us in our worst state. I'm sorry, God, when we only want to love people in their best state. We don't image you very well with that. Would you please help us? Because the flesh is going to wage war against us even now in these moments. On the way home tonight, this week. The world, the devil, those battles never stop coming. But thank you, Father, that greater are you that's in us than he that's in the world. And that we are called to be strong in the strength of your mind. And to stand in your strength. And to stand together. Please help us if, we're, if we are not being gut level honest with others. Because we still want them to think we are better than we are. Father, we need every ounce of grace you give us, and we need to be honest with some others in our lives, in our life groups, some accountability partners who we can be very real with, who would push us toward Christ and to run with us together. Please help us to abstain from sin, to put it away. If there are ways that we are making provision for the flesh, help us to go home this afternoon and change that. To not aim at sin, but to aim at Christ. Help us to keep our conduct in such a way that others would give you glory. So when we're tempted to say something we shouldn't, Father, may your spirit step in. When we're tempted to do something we should not, that would not be for your glory or our good or the good of others, stop us. 
And in that moment, may we give you praise for it will be your grace and your grace alone that moves us to obedience, to even give regard to these matters. And I pray that you would weigh on us heavy. There is a day of visitation that is coming. There is a day in which Christ is going to return. And so we need to live in such a way that's mindful of those that we know, perhaps even specific faces we can see right now. They still don't know Jesus. Perhaps they've rejected Jesus. Perhaps they're stumbling over Jesus. Father, would you use our words and our actions? Would you use our going with the gospel as a means of delivering them from the domain of darkness? Would you use us as your ambassadors? Please help us never be tempted to change the gospel. A gospel that we change will save no one. So help us to be so secure in who we are in Jesus, what it says in this text, that we are set free then to faithfully proclaim your word. And we can know that some will believe and some will not. But you are sovereign over all of that. And nothing will prevent you from accomplishing your plan. You have destined things and you will bring them to pass. They will be for the good of your people and for your eternal glory and praise. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing these words in response.